it's a fiction that there is no power dynamic. Tax deduction specifically for their charitable giving. Directing a fortune larger than some state budgets. Our donors are fairly comfortable with their privilege. So I went home and I like frantically Googled rich kids social justice. Couldn't just hide the fact that I came from wealth, that that had to be part of the story, that had to be part of the solution for me. Welcome to Radical Redistribution, a closer look at resource generation. This is Barbara. And this is Sophie. And we're excited to welcome you to our podcast. As part of the philanthropy and social movements, will the revolution be funded class at Harvard Kennedy School, taught by Megan Ming Francis. We've been exploring the benefits and harms of philanthropy for the past semester. Today, we'll be joined by Gara LaMarche, a longtime leader in the field of philanthropy. Gara is the current president of the Democracy Alliance and former leader at the Atlantic Philanthropies and the Open Society Foundation. We'll also hear from Holly Fetter, a young person and rising philanthropist set to inherit significant wealth from her parents, who has decided to give large amounts of it away, alongside other members of Resource Generation, a group for people like herself who work through their privilege together and push each other and their families to give their money to grassroots organizations. These two guests represent equally important but different views. One has been in the field for decades, while the other is newer to the field. We're excited to explore the relationship between philanthropy and social movements with them. Charitable foundations have recently exploded across the U.S., leading to over $800 billion in assets held by donors. Philanthropy is often celebrated for its giving, yet rarely scrutinized. More and more, big philanthropies' top-down approaches are seen as perpetuating injustices and obstructing on-the-ground movement building. In today's episode, we'll explore how one organization, Resource Generation, is taking a new approach to an old problem, increasing accountability and addressing the lack of democratic representation in philanthropy. That's today's episode. Let's get started. understand the need for resource generation and the mounting pressure for more democratic philanthropy, it is important to look at the beginning of foundations in the United States. When John D. Rockefeller created the U.S.'s first foundation, he was met with tremendous pushback from politicians, concerned that a private individual directing a fortune larger than some state budgets was undemocratic to its core. To limit the power of the foundation, a system was proposed to include congressmen in the grant approval process, as well as sunsetting the foundation after a few decades. Yet these proposals failed, and today the Rockefeller Foundation remains one of the largest endowments in the world. Today we see the distribution of similarly large amounts of money, alongside similar critiques. Bill Gates, George Soros, the Ford Foundation, and Silicon Valley's new billionaires deploy billions to purportedly solve the world's toughest problems. And yet, like their predecessor, Rockefeller, they face no oversight or accountability to the communities they impact. Take, for example, the Gates Foundation. 
Their four-person board consists of Bill and Melinda Gates, Bill Gates' father, and Warren Buffett. Via the Gates Foundation, these four individuals yield tremendous power to decide the public health priorities of entire nations. Rob Reich from the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Society speaks about the microphone that the U.S. tax structure has given the rich. Though 90% of Americans give to charity each year, the wealthy are further rewarded by a tax deduction specifically for their charitable giving. This current tax structure benefits those who earn and give more. In effect, for every dollar a wealthy person gives, the government kicks in 40 cents. So why does this matter? In 2018, charitable gifts added up to $428 billion, the equivalent of 2% of the United States GDP. This $428 billion was untaxed, much of it given with almost no transparency or accountability. At a time of deeply racialized wealth inequality in the U.S., where the top 1% alone holds more wealth than the entire middle class, diverting these monies away from taxes and government programs is problematic. If billions of dollars are philanthropically funneled towards solving the world's toughest problems, why is the climate crisis still impending? Why does the racial wealth gap still exist? Why do people making the decisions not consult with the people experiencing the grossest inequalities? What is philanthropy's role and who is philanthropy accountable to? To better understand philanthropy's role in society, we spoke with Gara LaMarche, a human rights and social justice leader. For much of his career, Gara has led large foundations work spanning the globe, while not shying away from critiquing the way traditional philanthropies do business. Recently in his career, he was hired to completely spend down all assets of Atlantic philanthropies. To get started, we first asked Gara about the power asymmetry and his experience with power dynamics in philanthropy. Well, there's no question that there's a big power dynamic in philanthropy where money is concerned. And so I'd been on the other end of that, you know, running organizations. And one thing I was determined to do was to do what I could to kind of overcome that dynamic. Now, I think that in philanthropy, particularly in progressive philanthropy, there's a lot of tendency that people have to try to obscure the power dynamic, you know, to say, uh, you, you see the language of partnership, like, you know, a foundation doesn't have grantees, it has partners, you know. And But, you know, when you're giving somebody money so that they can keep their operation going and it's your decision whether to give them that money or to take it away and to put whatever conditions or attachments on it, you know, you, you have a for, your power over that person and there's a power dynamic. It's not partnership in any meaningful sense of the word. But at the end of the day, I think, Everybody involved benefits from honesty about the dynamic. It, it, it's, a, it's a fiction that there is no power dynamic. And I think it is much better to have relationships with people who want your money that acknowledge that power dynamic and kind of own it and work together to overcome it rather than pretend it doesn't exist. As Gareth stated, pretending equal power exists between philanthropists and grantees doesn't work. Rather, acknowledging the power imbalance and working through it together does. But because of the tremendous power foundations and their money yield, accountability is almost non-existent. To learn more, we asked Gara about this. You know, most other institutions have a degree of accountability. It might be regulatory, 
You know, you might have the SEC looking over your back or in, even in sports, there are all kinds of mechanisms, you know, and uh, there are market mechanisms in many places. If you're running a business that isn't serving customers very well, you'll eventually pay a price for it. Politics has its own accountability. You have to run for office and be elected and the voters get to speak. So uh, most realms have accountability and most realms have, most sectors have some press bearing down on them. So if you're a politician, you have that. If you're a business, you have that. If you're a philanthropy, for the most part, while you are accountable to your trustees, you're not accountable to the people you serve. The press isn't paying a lot of attention to what you're doing. There are some some things that have come into being in recent years, like Inside Philanthropy, which is a website devoted to scrutinizing foundations that have um, improved the situation somewhat. But basically, you don't fear any any external scrutiny. And so your incentives to, to behave decently are entirely self-directed. Gara has pointed out what Rockefeller's critics were afraid of. Philanthropies really aren't accountable to anyone. And it seems when this is combined with immense power dynamics, it could be a real opportunity for swaying programs or policies in the direction that they want. We asked him, given all of this, what solutions have worked to hold foundations more accountable? So I do have this critique, which lives uncomfortably in me, because at the same time as I have some of these concerns, I've made my living for the last 20 years or so redistributing the wealth of wealthy people and tried to do that in a way that conditions that power as much as possible on the input and the direction of the people who are most affected. So to use an example of that, in the Soros world, Soros's brand of philanthropy is quite devolutionary. Yes, it's his money. He decides what to give. It's quite a lot of money. But in every place he operates, he sets up a local board of directors in places like Guatemala you know, it was it included indigenous representatives in places like Haiti and South Africa. There were black or Baltimore, for that matter. There were black majority foundations in places where, where blacks had not exercised philanthropic power. And uh, substantial direction of the funds comes from folks who are responsive to the affected community. And all of the projects we ran at Soros, we had advisory committees of people from the field. In many cases, they made the actual grant making decisions. So I think you have to look for ways to democratize that power uh, and be accountable to it. And then I think, well, there are other mechanisms, you know, that can be employed. We also asked Gera about what he's seen others do to address these issues. And he had some really interesting examples. Let's have a listen. I think there's some positive movement in uh, what I would call democratization of philanthropy. And there are a couple of models for that. Sometimes you have a foundation like the Southern Partners Fund in Georgia that um, took the, where the donor gave the assets of her family foundation to a grassroots board in the South. And that board makes funding decisions and determines the, controls the money. And none of them are the people who made the money. They're all from grassroots, bottom-up organizations. That's, that's going to be relatively rare. You know, the Chorus Foundation in New York, Farhad Ibrahimi, he inherited or he was given 50, 75 million, a bunch of money from his father who had made some money in technology. Uh, and he uh, used it to start a foundation dealing with climate change. He identified a bunch of grassroots grantees, gave them support over 10 years. All the decision making is made by grant making committees from the field. He is 
divorced himself as much from the actual decision-making process as possible, a little less radically. I sit on the board of the David Rockefeller uh, Foundation, which is um, one of a family of Rockefeller Foundations, and I'm one of the two uh, non-family trustees on the board. And uh, we are a relatively small foundation with the money left by David Rockefeller when he died four or five years ago. And um, we do criminal justice and environmental protection and arts. And in the criminal justice realm, we identified a group of former prisoners, people who returned from incarceration, gave them a chunk of money that they both designed and controlled the distribution of. And it's, I think it's called the Canary Fund. I think they named it as well. So there are those mechanisms, and they've always been uh, kind of public charity foundations where you raise money from a variety of sources to give out, you know, to grassroots sources. And so where there isn't one single controlling entity of the money, it's inherently, I think, more democratized. So, you know, I'm writing about this, and I want to lift up some of those models. I think there is more and more consideration of it. And I think the more foundations can use those mechanisms where they devolve their own grant-making, decision-making to affected communities, I think the better off we'll be and the more credibility philanthropy will have. After studying critiques of philanthropy throughout the class, it was encouraging to hear from one of philanthropy's biggest critics suggestions to better democratize it. One such democratizing model I mentioned to Gara was resource generation. The other group that we're interviewing for this is a, um, it's a group called Resource Generation. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I know them. They're young, relatively young, um, mostly people who have some family wealth and they're, um, they kind of think together about philanthropy and a lot of them, Farhad Ibrahimi, who I mentioned is part of that. And um, to be a little facetious about it, the group I work with now, the Democracy Alliance, is a kind of like a progressive counterpart to the Cokes, as it were. And it's a group of progressive donors who are trying to, and we have some young ones, but it skews older, who are trying to, you know, aggregate their money in a strategic way in and around civic engagement on the progressive side of the spectrum. And, you know, I always joke that our donors, they're fairly comfortable with their privilege. You know, they don't, they don't ask, they're not asking themselves a lot of questions about, you know, is it wrong for me to have this wealth? They're just trying to use it in a way that's, um, you know, fairly strategic. We'll now hear from Holly Fetter, a member of Resource Generation. Resource Generation is working to address the power dynamics and accountability issues in philanthropy that Gara thoughtfully described. Holly and Gara are in different stages on their philanthropic journeys. Due to her youth, Holly has less philanthropic experience, yet she is bolstered by the company she keeps, a new guard of young donors compared to the more bureaucratic historic foundations. So thanks for joining me. Um, to start off with Holly, I was wondering if you can talk about what inspired you to be philanthropic yourself and what inspired you on your, on your own journey in philanthropy. Yeah, great question. So let's see, I, I grew up in, in California, in Dallas, Texas. My dad was a business executive for most of my life. He was a CEO for a good part of my life, a Fortune 500 company. So I kind of knew that I had access to wealth growing up, but I didn't totally understand what that meant or what that looked like. And I was in communities where I was surrounded by people with wealth. And so it didn't really seem particularly exceptional. 
Um, it wasn't until I got to college on the West Coast um, that Occupy Wall Street started happening. And it was this sort of like really special moment where there's this kind of cleavage between the 1% and the 99 and I had to figure out where I fit in. I had been really politicized as a college student around racism and economic justice. And so this was a great opportunity to kind of confront, you know, my, my story and where I came from and figure out where I sort of fit in to that binary. And I ended up at one point, I went to a Occupy rally that was happening in San Francisco. And there was this like big cardboard cutout of like a Monopoly man kind of CEO. And we were, as people participating in this protest, were asked to put our hands on ropes that were keeping this thing up and like pull down the CEO. And that was sort of this like critical moment for me where I was like, oh, wow, okay, I need to <laughs> figure this stuff out. Um, I need to understand how my politics can, can kind of connect to, to my story and the access to wealth that I have. So I went home and I like frantically Googled um, rich kids social justice. And I stumbled across an article profiling someone named Leah Hunt Hendricks. I don't know if you all have encountered her. Okay. Um, and it talked in that article about resource generation. And so I followed the link and basically went to the website and read everything that they had on the website. And was like, this is amazing. I want to be involved in this. Um, I ended up starting a chapter on our on the college campus that I was at um, and got really involved from, from there. So for me, I was just, you know, coming to terms with my, my own personal progressive politics and then really knowing that I had to, I couldn't just hide the fact that I came from wealth, that that had to be part of the story and that had to be part of the solution for me. Holly's passion for social justice, coupled with reconciling her wealth, led her to a collective of young philanthropists called Resource Generation. Holly describes their mission best in her own words. So Resource Generation is a community and a movement of young people who are ages 18 to 35 who have access to wealth either now through um, maybe high income or some inheritance that they have or some, you know, trust or something, or that they stand to inherit down the line and they know about that and they're sort of preparing for that. I think sometimes people think that it's like a foundation of like a sort of council of young people that like pool all of our resources together and give in concert, but rather it's a community very decentralized of different people who are giving in sort of alignment and with similar underlying principles so we're all really committed to different so principles of social justice philanthropy, as we call it. So we're trying to give in a way that um, moves decision-making power and, and authority to communities that are most impacted by injustice. We're giving in a way that tries to get to the root causes of economic and racial and, and other kinds of injustice. Uh, so we each give independently. And I think that's something that that we're, there's, you know, we'll get to this later in the conversation, but that's another piece that we're trying to figure out is how do we do more things collectively. So the, it's a national community. We have different chapters in different cities and um, college campuses. And within those ch chapters, the emphasis is really around like community building, getting to know other people who kind of come from similar places where they have maybe one foot in the sort of social movement world and one foot in the like I vacation in the Bahamas world. And they're trying to figure out how to how to make that that all come together. Um, so a lot of community building and kind of um, holding each other accountable and challenging each other to, to move and grow in our in our giving and in our philanthropy. Um, and increasingly we're doing more sort of stuff that's in partnership with, with movements and with movement organizations. So um, bringing RG members to protests or getting folks to sign petitions, things like that. So more of the like action oriented uh, piece as well. Resource Generation strives to give away money to address the root causes of racism inequality and injustice by shifting power to the communities most directly impacted. Yet given Holly and RG's networks differ from those less resourced, 
we were curious how she tactically finds the right grantees and includes them in the process. Well, there's, I think there's some organizations that I give to just because I encountered their work in some way. So for example, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, I encountered them when I was a college student. I had an awesome class where we got to be involved in the, in the movement to pass the, the California Bill of Rights for Domestic Workers. And that's, I think, a great example of an organization that is like really building power in a really vulnerable community and trying to to change change systems through legislation and other means as well. So I love the work that they do. I'm also a huge fan of giving to intermediaries. So for me, that's like North Star Fund that I mentioned um, in New York City that funds New York City grassroots organizing groups. Third Wave Fund, for example, that will give to different um, LGBTQ-led organizing efforts, things like that. So I tend to give to organizations that I know have those amazing connections to grassroots organizations that I might lack and that are bringing and inviting folks from those communities to help decide where resources go. So that tends to be my my approach to doing that kind of work. That makes a lot of sense, especially since networks can be so limiting or so expansive. Some critique resource generation for being a majority white space that only recently encouraged members to sign a giving pledge committing to redistributing capital. I'm interested in your thoughts on this critique and how you or resource generation address or actively work on it. That is a super great valid critique. It's something that everyone in RG is grappling with really actively. I think some something that's important to understand is the context of the organization. So RG is not that old and it's traveled a long way since its inception. So originally it was meant to be sort of a safe confidential space for mostly white women who um, ha, you know, were involved in family giving and family foundations, but realized they had a more progressive politic than their older generations. Um, so it was really rooted in safety. Like the original name of RG was like comfort zone or something great like that. Um, so to think about how far that organization has traveled to now being way more outwardly focused, I think it's like a tension that we're grappling with and a place where we've made a lot of progress. So Resource Generation is is partnering with Center for Popular Democracy, the Movement for Black Lives to be really involved in and connected in movement work and finding ways to support um, outside of just writing checks, for example. There's the giving pledge. There's going to be an investment pledge at some point. Uh, we've been doing way more sort of media work and trying to talk more publicly. So it's, it's up for others to decide whether that's enough and whether that's sufficient and to give us feedback and to, to hold us accountable. I think something that is really an interesting tension that RG always has to deal with is like historically bad things have happened when rich people organize and build power. So it's like, how do you avoid that tension? <laughs> like we're, we're living in a world where a lot of us would argue, well, people with wealth need a lot less power. So then how do you like build power to get less? It, it's a bit of a tension between, so we want to, you know, balance like moving slowly, getting by and making sure that we're being intentional um, and not just like repeating some of the behavior of people with wealth, like in different kinds of positive and antisocial um, social change efforts. According to Resource Generation's public messaging, their goal is to ensure that accountability is to frontline communities or communities that are the most directly impacted by injustices. As Holly referenced, building partnerships with the Movement for Black Lives and the Center for Popular Democracy has been a step in this direction. The question remains as to whether the organization's model of galvanizing individual donors to fund causes that they choose independently is enough to be considered collective accountability. As Holly acknowledged, resource generation is young and still iterating on its model. 
Given this, they have more flexibility than more bureaucratic foundations, yet they lack that reach. Given the different models, we wondered if resource generation considered or already had relationships with the more traditional philanthropies like those GERA represented. Yeah, one, one of the um, sort of the principles of social justice philanthropy that are sort of essential to the RG model is trying to work to influence the field of philanthropy to orient more around sharing decision making, you know, funding systems change work and organizing work. So that's definitely something that, that RG does a lot of, whether that's thought leadership that we put out, blog posts, different kinds of media stuff, um, whether that's attending different convenings or co-hosting different convenings with traditional foundations. We also have really close partnerships with some of the local um, more participatory grant-making organizations, so North Star Fund in New York City or Social Justice Fund Northwest in, in Seattle. And then there's a whole area of programming that is around impacting family philanthropy and fa family foundations. So that's like another way in which we try and, and interact with a different part of the philanthropic landscape. From reading Holly's bio, we knew she'd also spent time working for a more traditional philanthropy, leading me to wonder how that experience impacted her. So I was at a certain very large foundation in, in New York City at the height of Black Lives Matter organizing the movement for Black Lives. And, you know, we were headquartered in New York City. The city was really alive and animated with a lot of protest energy, a lot of anger, a lot of rage, a lot of desire for a new world. And I saw the ways in which the foundation at which I was working was really limited in what we could fund in that moment. So a lot of the organizations that were popping up were not, you know, IRS registered 501c3s. Um, maybe they were people that, in communities that were new to the sort of national scene and couldn't be vetted very easily, so to speak. Big foundations have really slow timelines around approval, around getting money out the door. So there's just all these ways in which we were really prevented from responding to what was arguably like the biggest sort of social movement opportunity in, in decades. And meanwhile, I saw that outside of outside of our walls, there was organizations like Solidaire, which was a donor collective started by Leah Hunt Hendricks, where people were like giving in the most unbelievable ways that I had never seen before. So there was an email list where there were donors um, who were giving their credit card numbers over email or sharing their Amazon logins to, to, to protesters and organizers. You know, and, and they really like provided, um, you know, this sort of seed funding in a way to a lot of that movement. So I saw really up close the kind of limitations of institutional philanthropy. So I under, I mean, I think institutional philanthropy does have a huge role to play, especially on the in progressive spaces around shifting messaging at the national level, um, convening different people and institutions, kind of like you know, getting into the room where it happens. I'm not a Hamilton fan, but like everyone says that. But it also, I think there are a lot of like serious shortcomings when it comes to funding really radical or like the the sort of new startups, let's say, of like the, the, the social change world. Given Holly's exposure and experience working with grantees via both grassroots philanthropy and big philanthropy, we wondered what she would change about philanthropy if she could change anything. Yeah, I mean, I think I would I would love to see some of the big foundations embrace more of a social justice philanthropy approach. So whether that looks like being more participatory in their grant making decisions, not just having program officers, you know, decide where the money goes, but really involving people who are most impacted. I think the the sort of foundation space has a huge need for more accountability. And it's hard to say how that is created or how that comes to be because so many 
people are grantees or potential grantees and are fearful of speaking out. So that seems like a huge challenge that needs to be addressed. And I think also some of these foundations, especially the ones that don't have donors, you know, or don't have like a family member who's controlling the agenda, I think they really need to like take take more risks and fund work that might be a bit more provocative or a bit more challenging or not have all the perfect metrics all the time, um, fund work that isn't just led by, you know, kind of older white people in suits, to be frank. And then I think, I mean, there's a whole other conversation around philanthropy around like, should it even be allowed to exist? Like, should people be able to build enough wealth in the first place that they're then, you know, able to give it away and have this whole system? I think right now is like a really interesting moment of when you're in a crisis, who comes in to support people who are most vulnerable? And do we want to leave that up to foundations and corporations? I would leave that up to listeners of this podcast. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's some other questions of like, how do, how do we kind of look outside just taking philanthropy for granted and start to think about how do we want to create systems of, um, of support and what kind of safety nets do we want to build in this country and beyond? Absolutely. I love that answer. As Holly says, This pandemic has exposed the foundations of our infrastructure and economy, along with their faults, inequities, and gaps. She turns the question back to us. What do we want the possibilities for philanthropy and social movements to be? Out of curiosity, I asked Holly, is there a world you can imagine where philanthropy doesn't exist? In my lifetime, probably not. I'm going to go ahead and say I would guess not. But... I, I'm the kind of person who likes to, to be optimistic about that sort of thing and hold that kind of like maybe more radical vision, even though I know we have to operate in a different framework day to day. As Holly stated, the issues she cares most about, like racial justice and economic inequality, are large and seemingly intractable. Even with unlimited resources, time and talent, progress would be slow and hard to come by. Given this, I wondered if she was optimistic. Ooh, big question. Um, am I optimistic? I am hopeful that there is a revelation right now of, let's just think about workers and working people. There's a revelation, not, not a revelation, but like people are, people who didn't understand before are hopefully certainly understanding that like there's a huge swath of Americans that like cannot make ends meet, that there are some workers who are essential and some kinds of work that is essential and other work that is non-essential. And there is a complete flip around who gets paid more depending on how essential they are to our economy there's workers are have you know in some ways more power right now in some sense and that like they can sort of stop the means of producing whatever i think there's just more maybe appetite or tendency toward strike and feeling like more comfort and power in in taking that tactic so i feel you're seeing more kind of informal worker organizing which is to me exciting but at the same time you're seeing I mean, unions obviously have been decimated over time and you're seeing that like, I think um, Unite Here, the hospitality workers union, like they've lost like 95% of their members and therefore they have no income from dues. So I think some of the organizations that have held a lot of worker organizing are going to be struggling in future years. But I'm optimistic that like the general tendency to exert power among working people will be strong and stronger. And I don't know if like you've read much about Naomi Klein and her perspective on the shock doctrine. But I think I, I, I'm definitely animated by by her and by other thinkers, Astra Taylor and others who are really thinking like this is the moment to reimagine. Like we need to provide relief, um, and then we need to really reimagine and think about what the world is going to like come co- look like coming out of this crisis. Um, and and that kind of thinking like definitely definitely energizes me. So I hope that there's 
you know, more power to workers, more power to debtors. And um, hopefully we, we realize that a lot of the inequality that we let run rampant post 2008 is now kind of catching up with us and, and deepening the impact of this crisis. So. It seems like Holly and Gara agree on this point. When I asked Gara about the changes we were seeing in philanthropy because of COVID-19, he responded. So the man I referenced earlier, Farhad Ibrahimi, wrote a piece uh, last week about, he in general has a critique of philanthropy similar to mine. And he, um, he said, look, foundations have been behaving in pretty good ways since this pandemic. And they have suspended a lot of their normal operating style. They are giving out money uh, in general support, often without being asked for it. They're giving it, they're suspending normal kind of metrics and reporting. And the question is, why does it take a crisis to do that? And why, why should we go back to the new, the, the norm when that's over? And he asked a very good question. And I was talking to my wife about it because she, anybody who raises money from philanthropy um, has uh, a lot of private frustration about the way foundations behave. And, you know, you've got 50 funders and they all have different sets of guidelines and timetables. And, you know, they, you know, they penalize success in many ways. If, they, if you're doing well, they'll cut you off. If you're not doing well, they'll cut you off. And so um, I said, well, you know, maybe found it, maybe it'll be hard to go back to the way it was. Maybe your foundations get used to being, having more confidence in their grantees and in eliminating bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff. It'll be hard for them to reimpose it because they'll see how, you know, the, 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 how bad it was. As resource generation continues to evolve and grow, what it will look like in the future remains unknown. And its future most likely looks different to each of its members. To find out Holly's perspective, I asked her what she hoped resource generation would look like in 20 years. In, well, in 20 years, I kind of hope that uh, resource generation is either not around or that the people in the organization have a lot less wealth to be giving away, that there's some, there's some more equity, at least in the United States. So that's my first, my first wish. But um, yeah, I hope that, I hope that foundations have, have started to embrace, big foundations have started to embrace some of the things that we're talking about now and realize that it just needs to be common practice. Um, I hope that, you know, public policy is, is, is perhaps more progressive and we have a stronger government safety net. So we're not just relying on the you know, goodwill of, of people with wealth to try and um, support people who are, who are struggling. So yeah, those are some of the things I guess that I hope for, for RG in 20 years. The questions we started our podcast with will always remain unanswered. But the two philanthropists we spoke to, spanning experience and generational knowledge, have left us with approaches, reflections, and intentions to shape a philanthropic world that arches further towards justice and democracy. The world of philanthropy will always be fraught with power dynamics and unheard voices. Yet, the moment we find ourselves in now creates an opportunity for trust to be built, barriers to be lessened, and for marginalized voices to come closer to the center. This podcast was brought to you by Liz Weingartner, Carl Kumoji, Sophie Dover, and Barbara Bush. 
The music was created by Charles Copley. An enormous thank you to Gara LaMarche and Holly Fetter for their participation and to Professor Megan Ming Francis for her thought-provoking scholarship and class with us. To learn more, you can check out Gara LaMarche's writings at garalamarche.com. That's G-A-R-A-L-A-M-A-R-C-H-E.com. Holly Fetter's writings at hollyfetter.com, H-O-L-L-Y-F-E-T-T-E-R.com, and info on resource generation at resourcegeneration.com. To get further involved with Resource Generation's campaign for wealth redistribution, particularly during the COVID-19 crisis, check out Resource Generation's hashtag ShareMyCheck campaign.